I guess like I was saying earlier, this is episode two of the COD, Paul, Ryan. Um, today we're speaking with Bill Lester. Um, as Paul has told me, first African-American winner of the Rolex Cup in the NASCAR, um, in the NASCAR Liga. But I guess since you were saying earlier, you've had countless interviews. You still have interviews that people are trying to set up with you. Let's not, I guess, start with the obvious and let's um, kind of tell the people who you are and I guess give them, a, I guess, a little rundown of the uh, memoir that is in the works currently. Yeah. Sure, fair enough. First of all, I needed to correct something that you kind of uh, indicated initially, which is uh, yeah. what I am is the first black driver and only black driver so far to have won in the Grand Am series, which is a professional okay. sports car road racing series. And, you know, there are other competing uh, racing sanctioning bodies like IMSA, which is the International Motorsports Association. There's, um, let's see, oh man, there's, there's a number of them, but at the top level, at the time that I was racing, Grand Am was considered like the highest step. And so to have done that was a you know, pretty successful or significant accomplishment. Did it in 2011 at the Virginia International Raceway, which is a rock's throw from the home of Wendell Scott. So having won that race um, right there in that proximity meant a whole lot to me. It was historic, obviously, just from the standpoint of, you know, me having done so, but me having done so in Wendell's backyard, who, as you know, today was the first black driver to win and actually the only black driver to win at the top level of NASCAR, which is the Cup Series. NASCAR has a number of uh, ranks at the national level, which is the Cup Series, which is, which is the top, the Xfinity Series, which is the middle series, and then the truck series. And I made most of my name in NASCAR in the truck series, which is kind of a little more like the more entry level series. But I still ran like 160, 146 races, I think. Made over $2 million in prize money and effectively lived my dream. I was very fortunate to be able to do that. Um, the doors were not open. It was a matter of just overcoming obstacles, not taking no for an answer. And then especially with regard as far as NASCAR is concerned, a whole lot of people that were not welcoming for me. You know, they just kind of held on to and still continue to some of these folks to their sport as they like to think of it with both hands. You know, it's been referred to as the last bastion of white supremacy because to be able to compete successfully in NASCAR, you need cubic dollars. And when I'm talking about cubic dollars, I'm talking about for an annual sponsorship, one year of racing for one car, it's an 18 to, million, 18 to $20 million proposition Per year wow. so it's a corporate commitment and unfortunately even in 2020 we just do not have the same access to capital as they do why because we're not the ones by and large making the decisions they are the ones making the decisions they are controlling most of the you know the power of the capital and we just really haven't been able to break through and one of the most disappointing things to me with regard to just having said that is that when a lot of us make it to the top levels in c-suite all of a sudden we forget where we came from you know, it's like we become risk averse. We don't want to stick our neck out for fear that they it get, might get chopped off in the, in the boardroom and all of a sudden their head, you know, rolls, that sort of thing. But there are a whole lot of things that are um, disparities that uh, we deal with on the corporate level, obviously in sports with regard to NASCAR. The reason that we are able to be so successful in stick and ball sports is because we are exposed to it at a very young age and we are able to be given a level playing field. Those are the two main reasons. In motorsports, we are not exposed to it at a young age. You know, I was very fortunate because my father took me to a professional race just 
when I was just shy of eight years old. That set the hook for me. I was like blown away. I couldn't believe these cars blowing by me at 160, 170 miles an hour, but nobody there at that racetrack looked like me and my father. And I was like, hmm. So I don't know, if, I didn't know if it was something I could aspire to or not. All I knew is I loved it. I mean, I was excited by it. I was, you know, enchanted by it. I was like, man, that'd be great to do. I would love to be a race car driver. But, you know, I don't come from second, third generation race car driver. You know, I don't have Unser Petty Andretti last name, of course, right? It's Lester. And my father was very good in basketball. And, you know, it's like the thing we did in our neighborhood is we went out and hung out with our friends. We played ball, right? You know, I didn't have any friends that had go-karts. I didn't have a go-kart, right? And become exposed to racing. When we see racing, at least when I saw racing as a kid, on ABC's Wild World of Sports, so you know, now I'm dating myself how old I am because you know, ABC's Wild World of Sports doesn't even show racing anymore. But right. when they did, you know, you would see the Daytona 500 or the Southern 500, you know, or the Talladega 500, and you saw, you know, Cooter and Jim Bob running around in a circle with Confederate flags lining the track. Nothing could be as unwelcoming as that sight. And I was like, you know, why would anybody want to run in NASCAR? That's my thought at the, at the time, at my age. I was like, that's just running around in circles trying to stay off a concrete wall. My thoughts about racing were that racing should be an extension of what you do on the street. On the street, you turn right, you turn left, you upshift, you downshift, you accelerate, you brake. You don't drop it in fourth gear in a stock car and turn left trying not to hit a concrete wall. And when I, those guys were getting interviewed, those drivers, you know, by the um, commentators and the broadcasters, and they were asking them questions and just the way these guys were talking with their Southern drawls and, you know, <laughs> all that sort of thing. I was like, man, I couldn't even, I couldn't even relate to that as being racing. I wanted to go to like the Indy 500 open wheel racing or, you know, endurance right. racing like the 24 hours of Le Mans in France or the 24 hours of Daytona, which is, you know, our biggest endurance race here in the States, but never would aspire to go to NASCAR. So for me to actually get to NASCAR is just, frankly, you know, I, I would have never predicted it, especially coming in at 40 years of age. You know, that's when I became a professional race car driver at 40. This is when most people are ramping down their careers and have already decided what they want to do with their life. And of course, like I said about being risk averse, folks are risk averse at that point in their life. They don't want to do anything that, you know, they may fail at or, you know, may not be successful at or the, the road isn't completely paved. For me, it wasn't like that, man. I didn't know whether or not I was going to sink or swim, but I believed in myself. Uh, my wife supported me. I jumped in with both feet. We gave myself a three-year window of opportunity to make it. Fortunately, I was able to do so. Hey, you know what's funny about that? Uh, just, just to go off of what you said, the first time that I went to uh, the Indy 500, right, I went to any, any race that had anything to do with cars, was uh, after the military when I was 25 years old, right? Because like you said, nobody's ever like, oh, let's go to this NASCAR race or let's go to the Formula One race, right? So I saw one of my buddies, he mm -hmm. was into it. We went there, we, we camped out, we, we went to the race. I mean, it was amazing. And I was like, man, why have I, I've never heard about this. Like, it's, it's not really embedded into our culture. You know what I mean? It's not something that they're like, oh, let's go do this. So it's, it's interesting that you say that, because I'm like, why don't we do that? You know, we like cars too. I like racing, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. You know, it's like you said, you know, nobody does it in our community. It's not, right. it's foreign to us, right? Mm -hmm. But for them, I mean, man, they come out of the diaper, you know, trying to get into a go-kart and trying to climb the ladder and, you know, extension of the family business, whether it be like garage mechanics and stuff like that, or, you know, these guys, they just, the Southern culture and racing are synonymous with each other, you know, and here I am growing up in Northern California, you know, you're over there in, in Chicago and whatnot. And, you know, I mean, it's like, no, we just kind of really weren't doing that sort of thing. But, you know, if we are exposed to it at an early age, and if we are given the opportunity to compete 
equally. We can do this because, you know, we have that. That's how we are wired. That's how we are built, you know. Yeah. But if it's something that doesn't look appealing to us and we know we're not welcome, which is a, a complete and clear sign of what the Confederate flag means to us, you all can have it, you know. So I am so happy that NASCAR made the stance that they did a couple of weeks ago when they banned the Confederate flag. That's a huge first step. Is it the only step they need to take? Absolutely not. But it's a huge first step. You know, so for what happened a couple of weeks ago at Atlanta Motor Speedway, right before the race, they did something that they had never done before, which is they stopped all the competitors on the start finish straight. And then the president of NASCAR came over the, the, the radio and, you know, the broadcasters could pick this up and said that NASCAR stands for equality. We are going to not allow for what's been happening across the country to infiltrate, infiltrate this sport. We're making a very concerted stand about this. And then he actually also, which really blew me away, um, gave George Floyd a moment of silence. Wow. I was blown away. Wow. I was floored. I just never thought NASCAR, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, the most foreign sport to us would make a statement the way they did. I was so compelled by what took place that I emailed Steve Phelps, who's the president of NASCAR, to tell him about how proud I was that NASCAR did that. He got back to me within a couple of hours. He said, Bill, I appreciate your words. And, you know, it's been too long since we talked to each other. Let's catch up. A couple of days later, you know, we spent some time on the phone. Um, I told him that I was in support of what NASCAR is doing. Because, you know, even though when I drove in the mid-2000s, NASCAR wasn't ready to hear what I had to say. Because I'd gone on record a number of times the media saying that I was not comfortable with the Confederate flag. But, you know, they weren't going to do anything. They were going to look at me like I had two heads. The timing wasn't right. Unfortunately, with the passing of, you know, George Floyd, you know, um, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, um, their sacrifice has opened the national consciousness and people are listening. You know, a lot of people are not receptive, but they're of change, but they're listening, you know, and the difference between now and if I, you know, even thought about trying to do something in the mid 2000s is that, um, they would have laughed me right on out of there. They would have just, you know, turned their backs. Now, you know, there is a level of consciousness by which people are actually walking with us and supporting us. It is not a black movement. It is a movement. Exactly. And I get so hurt by all the people on social media talking about Black Lives Movement, uh, black, black Lives Matter is a black power movement. It, it is not. It is right. almost as if we should have said Black yeah. Lives Matter too. Exactly. That's really what it is. We're not putting ourselves above anybody. We want to be on a level playing field. We want to be treated equally. We are all created equal, but we are not all treated equal. And that's what we are pushing for. I mean, I swear, I wish they would have listened to Colin Kaepernick four years ago. Hey. Oh, yeah. hey. <laughs> He's hey, looking hey. like a genius hey, right now. Way, hold, on. You know? hold on. By the way, just because I can say this, they owe him an apology. Because <laughs> this is, oh, this they is do. exactly what he was kneeling for. It's exactly what he was kneeling for. <laughs> At the very least, they owe him an apology. I mean, yeah. you know, he's looking like a straight up genius. And now, I mean, even the NFL, you know, uh, the commissioner, um, Roger Goodell, is pretty much indicating we apologize. We messed up, you know, so that's mm -hmm. huge. Right. Now we're just waiting, obviously, to see what the, the uh, NFL owners, especially, you know, Jerry Jones comes out and says, because, you know, he still seems to be, you know, hanging on to things. But, right. You know. right. Hey, moving and forward. Moving I guess forward. to add, yeah, uh, I wanted to add to how uh, you had spoke on the uh, NASCAR 
making that statement. Um, when I watched your uh, CNN interview, you said, um, you know, you don't know what else NASCAR is going to do next. And you also had mentioned that um, in 2020, Bubba still has minimal sponsorships. I think he might have had only Petty Motors or something like that. Um, how hard was it for you to get corporate sponsorships in your career? <laughs> I mean, extremely hard. That, you know, it wasn't uh, a matter of my continuing in racing because I didn't have the skills. It was a matter of I didn't have the funding. And yeah. again, you know, it is so hard to get corporate America to think out of the box. They just go with the tried and true, you know, I mean, right. they're risk averse and it requires the capital to be successful. And when I'm out there racing, when I was at, um, you know, two thirds, the, the sponsorship budget or funding that a top tier team runs with and Bubba's doing the same, that's a complete disadvantage. That's telling Bubba, okay, go out there and run with one hand tied behind your back. That's effectively what it is. And the paradigm with racing so that your audience understands is so different from stick and ball sports. In stick and ball sports, there is a formal ladder you climb where you can easily determine and distinguish the top tier from those that just have some talent. You know, you can distinguish the LeBron James. They're going to rise to the top, right? right. Um, in racing, you can buy, believe it or not, you can buy your way into the sport. If you come from a family or whatever access or resources you have that allows you to cover that sponsorship, the team owner is very happy to take your money and put a car out there on the track for you. A lot of the best, I would say, <laughs> yeah, I just leave it like that. A lot of the best drivers are not out there on the track. Those that have access to capital are out there racing. A lot of the guys with the most talent are at home frustrated and have given up. I mean, I can't tell you how many black drivers have followed me on social media or have reached out to me on my website and said, Bill, how do I, how do I get out there like you? And I said, the most important thing you can do for yourself is to find money right now. You know, even as you're trying to maybe develop your skills, whatever, find money because you can't have enough of it. The team owners sit back and say, okay, bring your helmet. Oh no, bring your checkbook first, then bring your helmet. Don't bring your helmet and then maybe bring some sponsorship because I got sponsorship in place. No, right. you're bringing the operational budget for you to compete with. Unless you are a household name in this day and age, unless you are, you know, Jimmy Johnson or, you know, um, Kevin Harvick, you know, some of the top guys that are out there, Kyle Busch, you know, Denny Hamlin, a lot of these guys, I would say half the field is bringing money. That's how crazy it is. It's like telling LeBron James, okay, LeBron, you can jump out of the gym, you know, you got great handles, you know, you got eyes in the back of your head. I'll bring 18 to $20 million with you in your gym shoes and you can play for my team. Wow. That's what it's like. Yeah. How could we, uh, I guess, say now, now say if, um, say if the uh, NASCAR president emails you back and wants to ask for your input or some suggestions, how do you think we could uh, get around that or push the league forward to make it more of a level playing field? Well, you know, I can't say that I have all the answers. What I would like to do is engage him in a dialogue to throw ideas at the wall and see what sticks. I, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know exactly what's going to work, but I do know for more of us as drivers to be successful, we have to start at a very young age. Right. What NASCAR has created is something called a driver diversity program. And they'll take drivers that um, appear to have had talent and then take them under their wing and try to groom them to be on the national, on the national level circuit. But 
there are very few of us. Our pipeline is so small to get to the point where to get to the point where we are attractive to the driver diversity program that it's it's almost criminal. You know, I mean, we are like trickling through, you know, the door as opposed to them just arging through the door. They got so many people that want to come and race, and we got one or two or you know three here and there. We need to have more in those single digit years out in go karts. You know, developing their skills at a very early age. The, the top black race car driver in the world is Lewis Hamilton. I don't know if you heard of him or not. Yep. He's six time Formula One world champion. And Formula One is the biggest um, sport, motorsport on the planet. Bigger than NASCAR, which is the number one here in the States. But I'm talking about internationally, Formula One is number one. Lewis Hamilton um, was in a go-kart in his single digit years. I think he started out like at six or seven. You know, his father, Anthony, was able to scrap and scrape enough money to put his son into a go-kart. Wow. And his saving grace wow. was that he was so good at a, such a young age that McLaren, a Formula One team, um, their um, principal, his name is Ron Dennis, saw Lewis Hamilton's talent and brought Lewis underneath his wing. And from there, the rest is history. But there are so few opportunities for that to happen. I mean, that is like the exception. It's not the rule. It's like, it's like a, you know, an anomaly. It's straight, the only way to really describe it. But um, that's what happened. And I think quite frankly, that over in Europe, even though I'm not saying the race relations are any better, right. I think what they do see is if you are talented as a driver, they don't look at your skin as closely as they do here. They look at your skin first here in the States. Over there, yeah. they'll look at your talent first and it's, oh, yeah, by the way, he's a black guy, you know? But Lewis Hamilton was, you know, if you're the principal of Formula One, uh, of a Formula One team in McLaren, and you are basically taking a risk of bringing this young black kid under your fold, that shows you all that you need to know about the importance of starting out young and um, you know, getting the right opportunities. You know, he got a great opportunity at a very young age and lo and behold, he's a six time Formula One world champion. Wow, nice. And I, I, there is, there's a lot of truth to that. Um, um, you know, I'm from Chicago as well. And one of my uncles, he was involved in Formula One, uh, I'm not sure if he owned his team, and it was short-lived. There's a lot of money that goes into it, um, but just going to those um, races, I felt way more welcome than even just watching NASCAR on TV. And obviously, my uncles and my my dad as well, they're very into racing. Um, but sometimes, you know, just seeing it on TV, I mean, it just, you know, you would see those flags as well. So. I didn't even have to go to a court to be like, you know, or a track wreck actually to look at the TV or look at a NASCAR race and say, I don't feel welcome here. <laughs> but going to Formula One and seeing my uncle, you know, have his team, I was like, wow, this actually seems like something that people would welcome me here. People talk to me, it wasn't off-putting. Um, so definitely, I think maybe NASCAR can look at Formula One and kind of take some cues from them and say, you know, how could we put talent over um, prejudice or put talent over these um, appearance that is so important in the U.S. Um, but I guess going back to NASCAR and Bubba, now there's a new development in a story where at first the, uh, you know, FBI had said that, oh, it's not a news, it was just a garage pull tab. We see the picture to all of us here, clear as day, it looks like a noose. Now, I hope you didn't experience any of that in your time at NASCAR, but did you experience any other symbols of hate outside of the Confederate flag when you were racing actively? Well, so 
there was no noose incident in my circumstance. I, I never right. saw anybody dangling a noose or any, you know, nooses around the track or that sort of thing. No, but needless to say, once, you know, I, I got by the fact that the Confederate flag was going to be there, you know, I had in my mind basically to ignore it and think about yeah. that as that, you know, this was just these folks culture, you know, and they just didn't know any better. And they're just hanging on to something that they were born into, or I should say, learned to, learned to embrace. Because when you're, they're kids, I'm sure these folks, you know, Confederate flag didn't mean anything to them. What it was, what happened is that their parents instilled this sense of pride in them with this Confederate flag. I mean, this, the racism and the symbolism and all that kind of stuff is something that's taught, you know, that is not something that, that's inherent out of the womb. So, um, you know, I just looked at it as, okay, well, you know, that's how, that's where they come from. I can't affect any change. The timing wasn't right. But in terms of answering your question, um, you know, I'd heard the N word being used. They didn't, nobody overtly called me that word, but I had seen conversations stop. I'd seen fingers point. I had heard the N-word murmured under their breath, but it wasn't directly in my face or believe me, it would have come to national attention <laughs> a long time ago yeah, because right. I would have done something about it. You know, because I'm one amongst the legion of them, but I wouldn't have stood for it, you know, but to, to their credit, it was, you know, I guess subversive and not overt. Because, you know, nobody did that. Nobody came right up in front of me and waved the flag in front of my face or, you know, called me the N-word. But it was very clear, just based on the reactions of people seeing me and what have you, that you know, <laughs> they've been a lot happier if I wasn't there. And one of the things that was one of the clearest indications is at a couple of racetracks, I was booed. And for no reason that I can fathom. You know, I didn't do anything to speak out against, you know, <clears throat> their sport or things that I experienced, which I could have very easily done, but I didn't, you know? I tried to assimilate to the environment that I was in so that I could be successful. That's really what it comes down to. If I'm out here calling them out and my whole pit crew is a bunch of white guys, how do you think I'm gonna, you know, feel going into a corner at 180 miles an hour when one of these guys could leave a lug nut off or a, a bolt loose or, you know, something falling off my vehicle and I'm careening into a fence and being airlifted to the hospital. Right. Couldn't do it, you know? So I had to be part of that team. I had to basically, you know, learn their culture, understand their culture, so I could try to understand them better and then have them kind of do the same with regard to me. I mean, when I first came over to NASCAR, they would call me Yankee. I was like, Yankee? <laughs> like, really? We're all Americans. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. It was bad enough that, you know, I come from a somewhat um, casual environment where, you know, there wasn't ma'am and sir attached as a prefix to everybody's, you know, name or whatever. And you come to the Southeast in the Bible Belt, and it's, you know, ma'am, sir, and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, huh. So, you know, <laughs> I, I did that with regard to some folks that um, I felt deserved the respect. But, I mean, I wasn't running around saying ma'am and sir. I mean, I don't have any Southern draw, as you can tell. And I've been here for quite a while now. But, um, no, I mean, you know, NASCAR's got a long way to go. I think, again, that um, it's really the fan base that has the most to um, transition to. NASCAR has already made it clear that they're stepping in the right direction. It's the fan base that is really just being reticent and just, you know, resistant to change. And, um, you know, when NASCAR, I shouldn't say NASCAR, when the drivers came out with that commercial, I don't know if you guys saw it, where they talked about um, lack, you know, 
doing away with racism, um, promoting equality, making this sport comfortable and inviting and welcoming to everybody. They did that on their own. NASCAR did not put them up to that. That was something that Jimmy Johnson kind of spearheaded and all the drivers got behind him and they put that commercial out. But even more moving to me was when they all got behind Bubba Wallace's car and pushed his car to the front of the grid before that race was started. And he took that selfie with all the NASCAR garage supporting him. That should tell all the folks out there that it's a new era. It's a new day. Yeah, it's powerful. That was a powerful yeah. moment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Bill. Now, I, I see we have five minutes or just yeah. a little bit over five minutes left. Um, I'm sure Paul was already leading into this question. Uh, what do you have uh, coming up next? I know we mentioned your memoir at the top of the call. Um, when could we expect that? That'll come out, well, it's scheduled to come out on February 2nd of next year. Okay. Right. So right before the Daytona 500 and right at the begin of, beginning of Black History Month. So I'm, all right, all right. Hey. I'm <laughs> so happy the publisher, I'm so happy the publisher, um, you know, used that as a date. And I was like saluting. I was like, thank you. That, that works for thank me. But hey. It's a motivational memoir that um, talks about, you know, realizing your dream and living your dream. And, you know, I'm testimony to that. I never gave up. As I said before, I became a NASCAR rookie at 40 and a cup rookie, which is the top level of NASCAR at 45 years of age. You know, most people would just really, <laughs> you did that? Cause that yeah. I broke the mold. That'll never happen again. You know, you don't come out of not having driven on dirt, not having been indoctrinated in NASCAR coming up on the West coast to come over here um, and do something that you don't have hardly any experience doing. I was used to road racing sports cars, not running around in a circle. But I was able to, uh, to do it because I have been given, you know, just God-given skills and gifts. I was never formally trained as a race car driver. Everything I did, I learned from watching, mimicking, sometimes learning through the school of hard knocks, doing stupid stuff on the street, which I don't condone. But, you know, that's where I found out what I could do and what I couldn't do. Right, <laughs> so, right. but, you know, yeah. Trust me, I'm not trying to advocate that for anybody, but uh, that's what I had to do to get there because I couldn't do it formally. I didn't have the resources to go and get, you know, trained at a track and all that kind of stuff. I wanted to race. I didn't want to learn how to race. I wanted to race. And so that's what I did with particularly that first paycheck. When I started out working high tech at Hewlett Packard, I went to a racetrack and started racing and learned, you know, like I said, the school of hard knocks, the deep end, however you want to preface it. Thank you. Thank yeah, you for yeah. joining us. You yeah, have anything else no, yeah, yeah. I just wanted to say, uh, man, it's, like, I, like I said, I appreciate you coming on and talking to us, uh, giving us your point of view. Um, this is a very powerful and a very, very, like, historic moment in time and history. I mean, obviously for all of us as black men. <laughs> so it's it's one of those things that, you know, it's, it's exciting. It's scary, but it's exciting, right? Because change is always, especially the radical change that's going on right now. You know, I mean, like you said, it's not a black movement. It's a people movement. We are the people, right? Human rights issue. Yeah, exactly. That's so exactly right. So, so we're moving forward. And um, just to hear your, your point of view is powerful, man. And uh, I hope a lot more people watch NASCAR and, and your memoir is coming out in February. We'll, we'll be promoting that. And, and, and I'll probably buy one of the first copies. And uh, thank you, Bill. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, I appreciate it, man. If I could say one last thing, the uh, title of it is called Winning in Reverse. And just so I can explain to you real quick what that means is that I did everything backwards. Most, as I've indicated early on the show, start out at a very young age, racing go-karts or racing in midgets or whatever their, you know, formalized training ground is as a kid. Mm -hmm. I didn't do that. 
my first racing was when I was in my early 20s, having started work for the you know, high tech industry, and then leaving that at 37 to become a pro at 40. But it's funny because the last competitive, real, real, last competitive racing I did was in karting at 50 years of age. I represented Team USA in international karting competition in Puerto Mayo, Portugal, overseas. So wow. that's why essentially my story is I got there, but I did it in reverse. Yep, strong. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Bill. Right, Appreciate it. your time, man. Thank you. you got it. Enjoyed it. Yeah. Talk to you. Thank you.